It's 10.30 in the morning on the 7th of October, 1942. On Hankley Common in Surrey, two Royal Marines, Geoffrey Cook and William Moore, are on routine manoeuvres on foot. The land has been ploughed and levelled to create perfect training terrain for tank crews, and the men are out making sure the ground is ready. Making their way through the mounds and dips, William Moore suddenly notices something sticking out of a pile of freshly turned earth, worrying that it might be a stake or branch that may entangle in tank tracks the pair go to investigate. What they find shocks them. It's a human arm. Trying not to disturb the scene further, the men creep closer and realize that the fingers of the hand raised in its macabre salute have been chewed, the skin and flesh gnawed away by some kind of vermin. Further examination of the scene reveals an exposed foot too. Fearing they've just come across a crime scene and knowing that they shouldn't move anything, the two hardened marines hot-footed back to base to report their discovery to their sergeant. Since the body had been discovered on military land, the scene is first examined by Lieutenant Norman MacLeod, who immediately calls the Surrey police. The first officers on the scene are Superintendents Thomas Roberts and Richard Webb. Within moments of arriving, however, both men know that the expertise of the murder squad at Scotland Yard will be needed and keep the area cordoned off until Detective Chief Inspector Edward Greeno and Detective Sergeant Fred Hodge arrive to take charge. There is no question that this is a murder investigation. No one buries a body on an open common with good intent. The question is, who's the victim? I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush. 
which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. As a murder investigator, DCI Greeno is a highly respected officer at Scotland Yard. With at least 80 commissioners' commendations already under his belt, he is an instinctive investigator with an intimate understanding of the criminal underworld. A heavy-set man with a boxer's build is formidable to both look at and work with. D.S. Hodge is lucky to be earning his stripes under a heavyweight like Greeno. As is custom, the investigation of a murder scene is conducted with the assistance of a forensic pathologist. And in this case, Dr. Keith Simpson takes the lead, accompanied by Dr. Eric Gardner, pathologist to the Surrey County Coroner. They will be in charge of the careful excavation of the remains, and alongside DCI Greeno and his team, the examination of the scene for potential evidence. Early examination reveals that the victim, a female, was dressed in a green and white summer dress with a lace collar and was wearing a pair of white woolen socks. Her underwear is still in place, suggesting that there was no sexual assault in the immediate lead up to her death. The bodies lying face down in a shallow grave, which obviously couldn't withstand the movements of the tanks and other military vehicles driving over it. Her left arm is tucked beneath her chest, and the right arm, which Moore first spotted, is stretched out in front of her as though she was dragged to the makeshift grave and dumped there. Dr. Simpson is disgusted to find that the body is badly decomposed all over, with the head chest and stomach, all mostly already eaten away by maggots. There's not going to be much to work with by the way of identification here. He does manage to find a small piece of scalp, with short, blondish hair attached and a headscarf still loosely knotted around a decomposing neck. Neither Dr. Simpson nor Dr. Gardner believe she was strangled with the scarf, instead both agreeing that the most likely cause of death is blunt force trauma. The victim's skull is completely caved in. Given the state of the decomposition, they estimate that the body has lain dead for around five to seven weeks, and that she was dragged to her final resting place in an uphill direction from lower on the common. This is supported by the three small parallel scratches on her heel. With little more to gain from the immediate scene itself, the body is moved to Guy's Hospital for the full autopsy and the area opened up to DCI Greeno and his men to conduct their thorough search for evidence. On the 12th of October, DCI Greeno and DS Hodge, supported by a team of some 60 police constables, conduct a fingertip search of Hankley Common. It's a vast area, but they will leave no stone, twig or branch unturned. This attention to detail is the true groundwork of murder investigations and the way DCI Greeno knows he will get his man. Officers uncover a heavy birchwood branch just 350 yards from the burial site and quite near to a military tripwire. Tapered at both ends, the branch is a good contender for the murder weapon, 
and on closer inspection, police find some short, blonde strands of hair crushed into the bark. If Dr. Simpson is able to match the bow to any of the women's injuries, they'll have their murder weapon. But this, DCI Greeno knows, is only a small part of the story. The search continues. The officers stop at nothing in their forensic search of the area, cutting down heather and bracken, sawing and breaking branches from trees, and digging up turf for the Home Office analyst, Dr. Roche Lynch, to assess. They even bring across metal detectors and sniffer dogs to find every possible item of evidence. Opening up the radius of the scene to around 400 yards from the burial site, the searchers find a national registration card belonging to a Joan Pearl Wolf, as well as a pair of women's shoes, a purse, and a handbag containing a bar of soap, a rosary, and a distinctive elephant charm. In a little dell near to where the heavy branch was discovered, they also find a Canadian Army-issued document for men requesting permission to marry, though it is still blank. Crucially, there is a letter written by that same Joan Wolfe to a Canadian soldier named Auguste Sangre, telling him that she is carrying his child and that she hoped he would agree to marry her. Finally, near the tripwire, they find another part of the victim's skull and a tooth, which are taken to join the remains at Guy's Hospital, London. Superintendent Richard Webb of the Surrey Police tells Greeno that the name Joan Paul Wolfe is well known to him, having interviewed the young woman personally in July and August following fears for her well-being. She had apparently been living on the common in a series of temporary tent-like dwellings, which led locals to dub her the Wigwam Girl. He remembers that she was wearing a green and white dress on both occasions he interviewed her, and that it was well known that she was in some kind of relationship with a young Canadian called Auguste Sangray, the same soldier to whom the letter they'd found was addressed. D.I. Greeno's team visit Joan's mother, Edith Watts, and she confirms that the personal effects they have found are Joan's, including the little elephant charm, which Edith distinctly recalls buying in Hastings. She tells the officers that she and Joan had broken off contact recently after she had finally lost her patience with her daughter and written her a letter saying she would only speak to her again if Joan agreed that she would behave properly from now on. The picture she painted of her daughter was one of a sexually promiscuous, wild and unrepentant girl who had made several bad decisions and turned her back on her convent education and Catholicism completely. As far as DCI Greeno and DS Hodge are concerned, they've found their victim. Over at Guy's hospital, Dr. Simpson is busy with the autopsy and is finding the irrefutable facts which will go hand in hand with DCI Greeno's theories. During the 1940s, pathologists were the ones to deal with all fibers, blood, hair, dust and other items found at the scene of the crime. It wouldn't be until years later that this work falls to police laboratories. Dr. Simpson and DCI Greeno have worked together before and have a huge respect for each other's abilities. They communicate their findings well to each other to build the case. Dr. Simpson has already confirmed that the victim is a Caucasian female between 17 and 20 years old, 
around five foot four in height, with short styled brown hair which had been dyed blonde a few weeks before her death. Her skull was found in 38 distinct parts, and it had been a labor of love for Simpson to wire the pieces together to ascertain how her injuries came about. This process reveals a large impact site on the back of the skull, concurrent with blunt force trauma, and Simpson is able to match the cavity to the shape of the tapered branch of birchwood that DCI Greeno and his men found near the body. The position of the injury, coupled with another fracture on the victim's cheekbone, lead Dr. Simpson to conclude that the fatal blow came from behind while she was lying face down in the dirt. The only saving grace for the poor girl is that the blow to her head would have knocked her unconscious straight away, and death would have followed soon after. Curiously, Dr. Simpson also finds a number of knife wounds on the victim's forehead, right hand, and right forearm. No flesh remained on the left arm or hand to identify similar wounds. These stab wounds were likely inflicted before her death, and it appears that she may have been facing her attacker and using her hands and arms to defend herself when the stabs were inflicted, and then turned to run away, tripping and falling in the undergrowth before being bludgeoned to death from behind. All of the injuries seem to indicate a right-handed attacker, but Dr. Simpson notices something unique about the knife wounds. The skin and tissues around each had been torn outwards as the knife had been pulled out. This tells him that the blade used to stab the girl was curved or hooked at the tip. Returning his conclusions to DCI Greeno, Dr. Simpson says, I thought it had begun in the dell where Joan's papers were found, probably with the stabbing attack on her head. She must have run downhill, screaming with pain and fear, inviting pursuits to silence her. Her crucifix ornament must have been torn or pulled away, and the contents of her handbag spilled out as she ran. Dizzy and faint because of her head wounds, and with blood running from her head wound into her eyes, she was already stumbling at the rivulet where a tripwire had been laid by exercising troops. She fell heavily, knocking out her front teeth and further dazing herself, but was almost certainly still able to cry out for help, still inviting a silencing injury. Lying prone, with her right cheek on the ground, when she was struck the final blow with a birchwood bow. Thanks to his findings in the autopsy, Dr. Simpson also clarifies his assessment of time of death to around one month, meaning that the girl died in early to mid-September. The fact that her body had been so dramatically infested with maggots means that she probably lay exposed for at least 24 hours before her attacker dragged her body to the burial site. Now confident that the victim is indeed Joan Pearl Wolfe, DCI Greeno and DS Hodge head over to the army barracks at nearby Godalming to have an informal chat with August Sangre about his relationship with Joan. Sangre, a somber man of mixed French-Canadian and indigenous Cree heritage, is both aloof and brooding. He doesn't deny having been in a relationship with Joan, but insists that he hasn't seen her since the 14th of September, when she didn't turn up for a date. He claims that the relationship was not that serious, 
and that his real intentions were set on a woman he had previously met in Glasgow. He says that he didn't report Joan missing to the police, but did mention it to his sergeant provost. Police show sangre items of clothing found at the scene, and he confirms that they belong to Joan. While at the base, Greeno interviews some of Sangre's colleagues too, and learns a number of differing versions of the story of Joan's disappearance that Sangre had given to his fellow soldiers. He also learns that August Sangre vacillates between bouts of anxiety or disengagement. One sergeant observed that ever since the body was discovered, Sangre seemed on edge. Greeno also notes that before his interview with Sangre, the man took an unusually long time to use the bathroom. Having completed his informal questioning and being aware that Sangre is due some leave soon, DCI Greeno makes a formal request to the army to interview Sangre at Godalming Police Station. The army agrees. At the police station, under formal questioning, August Sangre agrees to tell everything he knows of Joan Pearl Wolf and his association with her. 17,000 words later, dictated over four days in interview sessions lasting 19 hours, Greeno and his team have the longest statement ever made to British police. In addition to the interview, over the course of these four days, Greeno has Sangre show officers the various locations he mentions in his statement, like Joan's one-time residence at a bungalow owned by a woman called Kate Hayter, and a detailed tour of the two wigwams he constructed for Joan to live in on the common. In his interview, Sangre tells of his relationship with Joan from its very first moment. How they'd met in a bar where she'd ordered a lemonade. He offered her something stronger, and despite her refusing the drink, they sat and chatted for a while. Later, they left the bar and headed to the local green, where they engaged in intercourse for the first time. He tells of an on-off relationship with her, in which she sometimes spoke about marriage, children, and a life together, yet at other times wouldn't keep the dates that they had made and would instead make arrangements with other soldiers from the barracks. On one such occasion, Sangre and another soldier called Hartnell chanced upon Joan outside the fish and chip shop in Godalming. She had apparently arranged to meet Hartnell there but got visibly upset when he suggested Sangre toss a coin to decide which of the two men should have her that night. Seeing her upset, Hartnell left the pair of ill-fated lovers to it. Sangre claims he took Joan to the undergrowth close to Whitley Army Camp for the first time that night, after she admitted that she had nowhere to stay. He says it was on this occasion that he built the first makeshift wigwam for her, which he describes as a little shack with limbs and stuff. Apparently, he stayed the night with her in the wigwam and only returned to barracks just before the 6am roll call, leaving Joan with his photograph, address and a promise to return. The wigwam became the place where the two would meet regularly, talk, make love and share food that Sangre snuck out of his nearby army camp. He would head back to the barracks for the 10pm roll call and then return to spend the night with her. That first wigwam was discovered relatively quickly, and Joan was moved on from it. But this just encouraged Sangre to build a bigger, 
second wigwam in which to carry on their out-of-hours affair. These wigwams were built using techniques and traditions from his Cree ancestors and were relatively solid, sturdy structures. Sometime in August, Joan was admitted to hospital in Guildford, having fainted in the street. Sangre says that the first he heard about it was when he received a letter from her telling him where she was and that she thought she might be pregnant. She wrote, Just one week has passed since I have known you, dear. It seems such a long time. Anyway, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a tiny wee one. I regret what we did, now it is too late, for I still say it is wicked and was brought up in a strict Catholic school. We were taught that to have a baby before you were married was a sin. There was no sign in the autopsy that Joan was pregnant when she died. But even if she was, there's no way Sangre could have been the father, given that the two had only begun their relationship nine days before the letter was written. Sangre claims that Joan would often talk of marriage and babies. It seems to DCI Greeno that Sangre feels he has nothing to hide in sharing these details, perhaps believing he was painting a picture of an unstable and promiscuous young woman who could have been attacked by anyone. He does reluctantly admit, under pressure, that he and Joan had argued on the day of their last meeting, which he says was on the 14th of September. He says they quarrelled about his reluctance to marry her and her desire to be his wife. With that admission hanging heavy in the air, he insists again that she was fine and well when he left her and that he caused her no harm or injury and still maintains that he has no knowledge of where she is now. When Greeno questions him about the whereabouts of his army issue knife, Sangre shrugs and says that he gave the knife to Joan to keep with her. Sangre's four-day interview formally concludes on October the 16th and he is released, pending further inquiries. Before he leaves the station at Godalming, he says to Greeno, I suppose you've found her. Everything points to me. I guess I shall get the blame, before burying his head in his hands. For now, Greeno and his team don't have enough evidence to charge Sangre, but it's only a matter of time before their exhaustive detective work turns up the proof they need. While Sangre was being interviewed by the police, his army blanket and uniform were confiscated and sent to Dr. Roche Lynch to be tested. Both the trousers and the blanket seemed to have been recently washed, though not very thoroughly. With Dr. Roche Lynch's advanced forensic techniques, it doesn't take long to identify that both items have bloodstains on them and that the position of the stains on the blanket in particular match where blood would have leaked from Joan's wounds had she been wrapped in it. Just to add to the mounting evidence against Sangre, a new discovery is made. A young private, Albert Brown, is charged with clearing a blocked drain in the barracks wash house and while carrying out this duty, he finds a knife with a hooked blade hidden in the wastepipe. It's a simple matter of a few questions posed to Sangre's comrades to identify that the knife is similar to one known to have belonged to him. The weapon is sent for testing too, but has spent too long submerged in the water to have any traces of blood, hair or matter on it. Dr. Simpson, however, confirms that this was exactly the kind of hooked blade which had caused Joan's very specific stab wounds. On the 6th of December, DCI Greeno heads over to Aldershot Barracks 
where Sangre was transferred, to interview him again. He requests that the suspect accompanies officers back to Hankley Common to show them the places where he and Joan would meet. Sangre agrees to the request, hesitantly, and they all set off. When they arrive at the edge of Hound and Wood, the area of the common where Dr. Simpson calculated that Joan had been murdered, Sangre refuses to go into the woods, and in fact won't even so much as glance in its direction. Taking this as further suggestion of his guilt, DCI Greeno escorts Sangre back to Godalming Police Station, where he is interviewed again, this time with the focus being on the knife, rather than Sangre's relationship with Joan. He maintains that he gave the knife to Joan and has nothing further to say about it. By 4pm that afternoon, DCI Greeno has seen and heard enough and charges Sangre with the murder of Joan Pearl Wolfe. He is remanded at Brixton Prison to await the committal trials and Greeno is sure he has his man. Formal committal hearings take place over eight days in Guildford. 21 of Sangre's fellow soldiers testify as eyewitnesses to his relationship with Joan and to the varying and conflicting accounts he gave them of her disappearance. Scotland Yard and Surrey Police present the evidence they have gathered, including details of the knife, the wigwams, and Sangre's movement on certain key dates. DCI Greeno even reads out Sangre's lengthy statement in full, and tells the court how the suspect confided in him that these official inquiries must only be underway because police had found Joan's body, thus implicating himself by knowing she was dead. Finally, doctors Simpson, Gardner and Lynch all testify, sharing their many forensic discoveries on Joan's body from the murder scene and burial site and from Sangre's uniform and blanket. With all heard, the judge Mr. Justice McNaughton is satisfied that there is enough evidence for Sangre to face trial for murder, and the date is set for the 24th of February, 1943. The trial of August Sangre begins promptly, kicked off with Sangre formally stating his plea of not guilty to the murder of Joan Pearl Wolfe. Opening for the prosecution, Eric Nev confidently states that the Crown intends to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Sangre is guilty of Joan's murder. He re-outlines the evidence they have gathered, which he believes is irrefutable, and outlines for the jury exactly what the charge of murder means and how the trial should be heard. Nev gives particular focus to the distinctive knife, which he claims Sangre had also used to build the two wigwams the couple had lived in, and to the blood evidence found on Sangre's blanket. Standing to begin his defence, Sangre's lawyer, Linton Thorpe, rejects the claim that the knife even belonged to his client. Furthermore, he states that in their search of the common, police found another knife just over 20 paces from the murder scene, which was tossed aside by the searching officer as not being relevant. Despite numerous attempts, that particular knife was not found again. Thorpe does a good job of casting doubt on the prosecution's claims and of reminding the jury that his client claims he loved Joan, reading out several exchanges in letters the couple had written to each other. 
Importantly, he points out Jones' known previous relationships with other soldiers from the barracks and claims that this, coupled with a promiscuous and nomadic lifestyle, means that any one of the 100,000 soldiers on the camp at the time could in fact be the murderer. Not to be dissuaded, the prosecution begin presenting their witness testimonies, and there are many. The investigating officers formally introduce their evidence to the hearing, including the knife, the blanket, the branch, and the timeline of the relationship. Joan's mother, Edith, then confirms that the items found in the dell where Joan was attacked had belonged to her daughter. The court also hears from a Sergeant Hicks, who says that he helped Sangre regularly by reading Joan's letters to him and by writing his replies. Importantly, Hicks tells the court that Sangre hadn't mentioned Joan's disappearance to him until as late as the 27th of September, which undermines the defense's claim of Sangre's concern for his lover. The second day of the trial sees another 20 witnesses presented to the judge and jury, detailing times when Sangre acted possessively over Joan with other soldiers, or when he seemed indifferent to either their relationship or later her disappearance. The sergeant provost from his barracks, Harold Wade, reports that Sangre had clearly stated he had no intention of marrying Joan, and that when Wade had asked him why he was so worried about her going missing, Sangre had apparently replied, If she should be found, and anything has happened to her, I don't want to be mixed up with it. Witness after witness gives their testimony, and most of it damns Sangre further, though it is largely all hearsay. Remarkably, and for the first time in British legal history, Dr. Simpson requests to present Joan's reconstructed skull to the jury. Despite repeated overruled objections from Thorpe and the defense team, the item is admitted, and Simpson shows them how the wounds in the skull match the knife exactly. He explains that she was clearly facing her attacker when she was stabbed, and that he was obviously right-handed, which Sangre is. While Simpson could not confirm that the knife presented was definitely the one used in the attack, what he could say was that no other standard-issue Canadian or British knife could have caused the same wounds. Sangre was the only soldier on the base to own a knife like the one presented. By the time Sangre takes a stand in his own defense, all he can do is refute all the other witness testimonies as lies. At times, he even contradicts his own statement given to the police. Eric Nev subjects him to a lengthy and brutal cross-examination, repeatedly calling into question the contradictions and inconsistencies in his version of events. By the end of the closing arguments, the defense case looks weak and confused, and while there is no definitive proof that Sangre had actually murdered Joan, Nev says the combined evidence they have brought against him is overwhelming. Before they retire to consider their verdict, the judge says to the jury that the girl was murdered is not in dispute. That she was murdered by some man is also quite plain. The only question you have to determine is have the Crown satisfied you beyond all real doubt the prisoner, August Sangre, is the man who murdered her? I can only conclude by saying what I said at the beginning. When dealing with a case of circumstantial evidence, you must be satisfied beyond all doubt before you find the prisoner is guilty. 
It takes the jury just two hours to reach their verdict. Sangre is found guilty, though they include a strong recommendation for mercy. The judge states that their recommendation will be put to the correct channels, but hands down the sentence prescribed by law. That you be taken from here to the place from whence you came, and from there to a place of lawful execution, and that there you be hanged by the neck until you be dead, and that your body afterwards be buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have been last confined. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Sangre's final statement to the court is simple, yet impassioned. I am not guilty, sir. I never killed that girl. After an unsuccessful appeal, August Sangre was hanged at Wandsworth Prison at 9am on the 29th of April 1943. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the grounds of the prison. Just before his burial, an autopsy was performed on his body by Dr. Simpson, who found a tattoo of Joan's name on the soldier's arm. Perhaps he had loved her after all. In his memoirs, which were published in 1960, DCI Edward Greeno admits that he had feared that the case against August Sangre would be thrown out of court because, during that incredibly long interview they conducted with the suspect, they actually held him without charge for five days, four days longer than the law of habeas corpus allowed. Had Sangre's defence brought it up, the judge would have been within his right to dismiss the case outright. Nonetheless, DCI Greeno remained convinced of Sangre's guilt. In that same memoir, he speculates on the soldier's motive for the murder. I had interviewed thousands of people in this case, and 74 of them went into the witness box. The case was so watertight that, as Sir Norman Kendall said later, Sangre's appeal against the death sentence was almost a farce. One small doubt remained. Sangre murdered the girl because she was expecting his child. But was she? Was she expecting anybody's child? The doctors didn't think so on the occasion that the police sent her to hospital, and when her body was found it was too late to tell. But this is certain. Sangre did murder her. He confessed before he died. It is never announced when a murderer confesses. But why not? There are always cranks and crackpots to argue that some wicked policeman has framed some poor fellow. So why make an official secret of the fact that the policeman did his job? The DCI Greeno stuck to his guns and used solid detective work and detailed forensic analysis to get the conviction in the case of the Wigwam murder is one of the reasons he has become known as a governor of Scotland Yard, one of the 10 best detectives ever to grace the murder squad. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential. In 1946, London is finally beginning to heal from the terror of the Second World War. But a new monster emerges in their midst. Bodies of beautiful young women begin turning up in chic hotel rooms, and police are at a loss to find their sadistic murderer. Detectives of Scotland Yard find themselves in a race against time as they hunt down a terrifying criminal known only as the Lady Killer.
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.